before we get into our study on security, I want to talk to you about that security that we have in Christ, that if we've put our faith in Jesus, we believe the gospel, we've trusted by grace through faith in Christ alone to save us from our sins, then we have a strong security that cannot be jeopardized in any way by anything or anyone, including ourself. But before we talk about security, I want to talk to you about the gospel a little bit and about believing and about knowing Jesus as your Savior and your Lord, because you can't have security unless you know him, unless you put your faith and trust in him as your sacrifice for your sins, the crucified, buried, and risen Savior. So before we look at our study and any introduction, I want to ask you to join me in Romans chapter 10. Some familiar verses, perhaps familiar to all of us, maybe not. If they are familiar, I hope that you will treasure these verses for what they are. And if you're hearing it for the first time, or maybe you're still trying to figure out whether or not you want to believe in Jesus as your Savior from your sins, I hope that you'll listen carefully and closely, and that you will certainly be drawn today for salvation, that you will put your faith in Jesus. But in Romans chapter 10, I want to begin reading in verse number 9. Romans chapter 10 and verse number 9. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So as we read these verses, I, I want you to think about, first of all, whether or not you have done what, what these verses tell us to do is necessary to be saved from the penalty of our sins, that you have believed in your heart and confessed with your mouth your faith and trust in Jesus to save you from your sins, that you've believed in the gospel, that Jesus died, was buried, and rose again as he paid the penalty of the sins, both all past, present, and future for the world and everyone in it. And I wonder if you can look back in your life this morning and say, yes, there was a time when I became aware of my own sin and a need for a Savior. There was a time when I, I certainly heard the gospel, I read the gospel, somehow it was communicated to me, and I believed in Jesus that he did die on the cross, that he was buried and rose again in the great resurrection that the gospel narratives talk about. And on that basis, I am putting my faith in Jesus and his work 
to be saved from my sins. I hope that everyone here today has done that. And I hope that you can look back in your journey and say, yes, that has happened. There was a time where I believed. Now, some people have differences in their experience, and some people have different recollections about that experience. And I'm not trying to cause doubt this morning. My goal is to give you assurance. So I don't want anybody here to be doubtful if your recollection or your experience is different from somebody else, right? How many of us had an experience like the Apostle Paul? Anybody have that happen to them? No. Are we any less saved than Paul? No, right? So our experiences are going to be different and our testimonies are going to be different. I'm not interested in that so much today as I am you understanding and knowing that yes, you have believed according to the scriptural Uh, command and exhortation, I have believed in this way, and I know I have. Some of you may have forgotten the date. How many have lived long enough to forget the date, right? You don't even have to be old to do that. You can be my age and do that. That's, That's clearly understandable. So don't get hung up on those things, but really think about whether or not you have believed and that you have this salvation from Jesus that the scripture talks about. That's the important thing. And if that is the case, then you have security. You are secure in Christ, and that's what I want to talk about. If that isn't the case, the good news is you can believe today. You can decide to believe today and trust in Jesus in this way that Romans 10 talks about, and then you can experience the new life, and you can have security in Christ because of the hope that is found in him. So that's what I want to talk to you about today. And as we approach our study, I want to share these thoughts with you. It's necessary to address this topic of eternal security of the believer for for at least a couple of reasons. And the first one is, is that because there are a great number of people, and many of whom uh, profess to be believers, who espouse the view that a believer can lose their salvation, lose their justification, and that they have to somehow maintain it through good works or they're in jeopardy of not having eternal life. These individuals often accept this view simply because they were subjected to such an idea at one time in their lives and they never took the time to carefully search the scriptures themselves. It's good to pause here for us for a moment and just talk about this in a general way. Specifically, we are talking about security in Christ. And there are a lot of people today who will attend churches who profess uh, to be believers who have received some bad teaching along these lines, and they believe that somehow their eternal life can be revoked, that they aren't truly secure in Christ. And uh, the problem is a lot of them have been taught this or it's been spoken to them, and so because it was given to them maybe by someone that they trust, they just buy into it and they believe it. Well, that's really a bad way to form a belief system about security in Christ, it's frankly a bad way to form a belief system about anything. So if you hear something, you need to search the scriptures to see whether these things are so. And you need to build a biblical theology that will form your belief system 
not based on what people teach necessarily, but based on Scripture. And if what people teach will line up with Scripture, then it's worth allowing into your life to help you in your journey. If it doesn't, then obviously it must be discarded and dismissed. There are some who have actually searched the Scriptures and have come to their conclusions after failing to see the clear teaching of God and relying instead upon the more obscure passages of Scripture that seem to confirm their belief. So they find a Scripture that maybe seems to teach that somebody can lose their security in Christ, and they really latch on to a misappropriation and a misunderstanding of those passages without considering the whole of Scripture. That is a very dangerous way to approach Bible study. The Bible is to be taken as a whole. We need to compare Scripture with Scripture. If we find something that seemingly conflicts with good theology, we need to compare what the rest of God's self-revelation has to say about it and allow the majority of passages to shed light on the more obscure passages that may be harder to interpret or understand. Harry Ironside, some of you may remember his name, addressed this issue when he said, if you have a clear, definite, positive scripture, do not allow some passage that is perplexing, that is difficult of interpretation, that seems somewhat ambiguous to keep you from believing the positive statement. In this case, he that believeth hath everlasting life. Clear statement in scripture. Not just found in one place, but found in many places. It is also necessary to address the topic this morning because it has serious implications and ramifications in the believer's walk with Christ and in their witness to others. Anyone who believes that he can lose his salvation and gain it again at a later time has removed himself from a belief in grace through faith alone and has concluded that his own works have become an integral part of his salvation or lack thereof. And sadly, this is the way a lot of people view, even Bible-believing, professing Christians view the doctrine of salvation. Their view goes something like this, that God's part in saving me is initially when Jesus died on the cross and I believe in him, he saves me from the penalty of my sin. But then my part is making sure that I do good works so that I can maintain my salvation, so that I can maintain my justification. And in all reality, the whole thing from start to finish, that point in time in the past where I become free from the penalty of my sin, the present where I'm becoming more and more free from the power of sin, and the future when I become free from the presence of sin, all of that is equally by God's grace. By grace, through faith, in Christ alone, all of that is rooted. So we need to understand and know that it's not God's part and my part. It's all God's part from start to finish. And Ephesians 1 really brings that home because it introduces a very strong dose of God's sovereignty in all of this discussion. We have the responsibility of faith, 
But Ephesians 2 is clear that this grace and this faith is a gift from God. And God calls and God draws to himself people for salvation. And Ephesians 1 is steeped in the sovereignty of God. You can't escape that. We just read a good portion of that. And it is there and present. And that shouldn't be a threat to any of us and it shouldn't be a difficulty to any of us. It ought to be reassuring to all of us that God truly is in control, working out his will according to his pleasure. And so all of it then comes under the umbrella of the grace of God, and none of it is of works. Now, we are saved for good works or to good works, but we're not saved by good works. And any good thing that we do can't be from ourselves anyway. It has to come from the Holy Spirit as we cooperate with Him in our sanctification process. In his book, Eternal Security, Can You Be Sure?, Charles Stanley wrote some things that I have found very helpful as he expounds on six things that are at stake, as he puts it, when the doctrine of eternal security is rejected. And I want to take the time to just talk through these by way of introduction before we look at our study together today. The first thing that he says concerning assurance of salvation and something being at stake, he says this. He says assurance of salvation is at stake because the individual who believes that he is not eternally secure can never be completely sure that he is saved throughout his entire life. How many of you have ever dealt with doubting your salvation? I'm raising my hand because I used to, I was there. I was there. So there are several hands. Thank you for being vulnerable and transparent. So as a kid, uh, honestly, I, I told the 830 uh, crowd this morning this, and, and it, it's just true. I don't remember how many times I was baptized. You're like, what? Yeah, because I don't, I made so many professions of faith. Every time I messed up, I felt like I needed to get saved again. So I would pray a prayer, you know. I'd walk the aisle in the Baptist churches. We had invitations after every service. And I'd walk the aisle every once in a while and kneel at the front and quote-unquote pray the sinner's prayer and get saved. And after every time I did that, I was baptized. Well, this set me in a very confusing cycle in my life. Just terribly confusing. And the reason that I got there in my life and how I got there was that I had been taught a very legalistic approach to sanctification, which was really the same thing that I was sharing with you before, that my part in salvation was me doing good works and keeping my salvation, and that God would love me more for some reason if I did everything right, and that he would love me less if I didn't. And so I bought into that legalistic approach to sanctification, which was not at all by grace. And honestly, I cannot remember right now how many times I was baptized by water. Now, I know when I was baptized after I truly received and understood salvation, I, I, I understood it in my heart, in my intellect, and I, I have vivid memories of that. 
but it was after a long, confusing, disturbing, depressing childhood of the cycle of belief and baptism, belief and baptism, belief and baptism. Okay? So if you've ever doubted your salvation, I know exactly where you are or where you have been. I get it. And I hope today that you will be encouraged that if you truly have believed, you are secure in Christ. And your performance doesn't undo that. In fact, there's nothing about you or anyone else or anything else that can jeopardize or undo the security that you have in Christ, period. And anything else that purports itself to be true is a lie from hell, okay? You don't have to live in discouragement and doubt. You just don't. If you have believed, you are secure in Christ. So I want to encourage you with that. Don't get caught in that same cycle that I was caught in. The second thing that Stanley says is that forgiveness is at stake because the one who rejects eternal security believes that, whether he realizes it or not, that Jesus Christ only died for the sins that he committed prior to his salvation. Therefore, Christ did not die for all of his sins. So again, okay, I believe and Jesus forgives all my sins in the past and they're all clean and wiped away and I'm saved now, but boy, I got to be really careful what I do from this point on because I can lose my salvation and my security is in jeopardy. Wait a minute. If Jesus' death on the cross isn't good enough for the present and the future, how do you know that it's good enough for the past? And why would he only offer you forgiveness for the past without taking care of the present and the future? That's a conflict and does not uh, coexist well in a solid theology. So you have a problem really with understanding forgiveness and that Jesus takes care of our sins, past, present, and future. How many of us are glad for that today? Amen? He does, and we're secure because of that. The third thing that Stanley points out is the doctrine of salvation by faith alone is at stake because the one who rejects eternal security believes that his own actions can cause him to lose his salvation and then receive salvation again at a later time. Thus, salvation is accomplished by faith plus works, since his salvation, he believes, is maintained by works. We've already touched on that. Fourth, the rejection of eternal security undermines the love of Christ. Christ's love is only conditional upon the works of the individual. So again, if I perform well, Jesus loves me and everything is fine. And if I don't, he hates me and everything is not fine. The next thing is that the work of evangelism is at stake. When one rejects the eternal security of the believer, right, and you then are going to share the gospel with someone, you cannot assure them that they really know Jesus. There's this, there's this fluidity to it, and there's this uh, sway to it that really isn't sure and stable. How can you ever offer anyone assurance as you share the gospel? Finally, a clear focus on God is at stake. For the person who believes that he can lose his salvation and security must focus more upon himself and his own actions in order to secure his salvation rather than focusing his attention upon God as the author and the finisher of his faith. He that hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of salvation. 
It is going to happen because it doesn't uh, find its basis on us. It truly happens because of who God is. And that's the one thing that I want to make sure that we understand today as well before we continue. A lot of this, most of it, is going to be determined by our view of God. And if we have a bad view of God, if we have a view that is not biblically informed, then our doctrine is going to be erroneous. We're going to buy into things that aren't true because we don't understand who God is. And I can't stress enough that good theology comes from a proper view of God. And the focus needs to be on him and properly understanding his self-revelation to us. So in the remaining time that we have, I want to share with you these things that make the case for us being secure in Christ. That once we believe, we have this security. And I just want to walk through these things and then we'll close our time together. Give me a few more moments of your time and attention and I want to walk through these things with you. Number one, God gives eternal life to those who believe. And those who believe know him and he knows them, the scripture says. In John chapter 6, I assure you, anyone who believes has eternal life. Whenever you look at the passages, and again, we cannot go through all of them in a comprehensive way, but whenever you look at the passages about the gospel, about the life that you have whenever you believe the gospel, none of them even slightly suggest anything of a temporal nature or temporal value. You find, of course, verses like this in John 6, where you have eternal life. There's not an expiration date to that. That doesn't ever end. It truly is eternal. And if you somehow could send yourself out of God's grace after you truly believed, after you had authentic faith, then you could somehow terminate eternal life. And that just can't happen. There is no termination of eternal life. If it's something that you possess, it's something that you have, it's something that belongs to you through Jesus. You know him and he knows you. My sheep hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me. So God gives us eternal life, and you find this whole concept talked about in these terms. And none of us has the ability or the power to be able to terminate something that is eternal. That's, we don't even possess the ability to do that. And God gives it to us completely and fully upon our belief. We also want to look, not in a technical way, you don't have to have a seminary degree this morning to understand these things, but there are some nuances, we might call them, in, in the uh, Greek language, the Koine Greek especially, as our Bibles, uh, New Testaments, of course, were given in that originally, that, that really make the case for us. And again, I'm not going to confuse you with, with technical things this morning, but I just want to point out these things that strongly testify to this in three passages. You have one in Acts 16. You know this story, right? You remember what's happening in Acts 16. Paul and Silas are in jail. They've been imprisoned and persecuted for the cause of the gospel. 
And there's such a testimony there, right? They're singing songs at midnight and they're rejoicing in the Lord because of that. And this is such a powerful testimony that at the end of all of this, the jailer says, what must I do to be saved? And then verse 31, they answer him and say, believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. You will be saved at a point in time in the past an event to be accomplished. You will be saved. Not something that has to be repeated and not something that goes away. It's something that's accomplished. You will be saved. And then in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, you are saved by grace through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. You are saved by grace. You are saved. It is something that happens in the past that has ongoing results or consequences. So it's not something that has to be repeated. Okay, You do this, you believe, and you are saved. And this salvation has with it certain ongoing results. And then in Jude, verse 1. Jude says here, we have this testimony, Jude, a slave of Jesus Christ and a brother of James to those who are called, loved by God the Father, and what? Kept by Jesus Christ. He's the one who keeps us. We are kept, strong term. We are tightly gripped by God's grace. That's what it means to be kept. And we are kept by Jesus Christ. Now, if we had to work to maintain our salvation, I think we could all agree that this would have been a perfect place to insert that, right? If you wanted to teach that in any way, shape, or form, this would have been one of those places where you would have wanted to put it, right? It doesn't say that. It says simply that we are kept by Jesus Christ, tightly gripped by the grace of God. As we are gripped by his grace, we also must know that he is powerful. That grip is what we call omnipotent. And so we are kept by his power. I want you to look here with me at Romans chapter 8. This is such a significant passage in regard to this teaching. And I want to walk through this passage with you this morning. Beginning in verse 31, it says, What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? Now, God is for us to this extent. That's what verse 32 is all about. And how much is God for us? What did God do to demonstrate that he was for us, that he, that he wanted to save us? What did he do? Well, as verse 32 testifies, he loved us so much that he provided a way to rescue us from himself. Think about it. We deserved his wrath. His wrath was pitted against us because of our sin. We were the enemies of God. But he didn't want us to experience his just wrath against our sin. He didn't want us to have to go through that. Eternal separation from him and damnation. He didn't want that at all for us. He was for us so much 
that he did not even spare his own son, but offered him up for us all. How will he not also with him grant us everything? He's for us. He protects us against everything that would be against us and our spiritual health and vitality. And he's there with us. And the strong demonstration of this kind of love is that he gave his son. I often think of this because I have a son. And I look at this and I think, wow, what kind of love is that, right? How many of us would be willing to literally take one in our family, one of our children, if we have a son, our son, and say, okay, you're going to suffer and you're going to die for other people. And by the way, it's not because of anything that you have done, but it's because the world is so sinful and my wrath is against them that they need a propitiation and, a, and an atonement and you're the one that's going to provide that. I really don't believe there's a human being alive that has that in them. I know I don't have it in me because if it depended on me, we would all go to hell. Because okay? I'm not giving you Stephen. I'm just not doing that. It's not going to happen. And I don't think any of you would say, okay, yeah, I'll volunteer my kid to go through this. No, we're not doing that. But God did. And that's how much he loved us. And that's how much he wanted to fix us, all of our brokenness. So let's continue reading. Look at verse 33. Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? God is the one who justifies who can accuse? See, see, if we were in control of our justification and if we were accomplishing our justification, there would be all kinds of accusations that could be brought against us, right? Because we weren't doing it right or we weren't doing it good enough or we weren't doing enough of it. And we could have all kinds of doubt and, and accusation come against us concerning our position before God. But that isn't the case because God is the one who justifies and it's because of that justification and that crediting to our account of the righteousness of Christ that we have a proper standing before him and continue to have a proper standing before him because it doesn't depend on us at the beginning, in the middle, or in the future. None of it depends on us. It's all by his grace. God is the one who justifies. You can never be good enough before or even after your salvation to accomplish justification. If it was up to you and to me, we would miserably fail. It's not, though. God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more has been raised. He also is at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or anguish, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it is written, because of you, we are being put to death all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than victorious through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that not even death or life angels or rulers, things present or things to come, hostile powers, height or depth or any other created thing will have the power to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. 
I think that covers pretty much everything that has existed, is existing, or will ever exist. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ, and that means you and me. We're not even capable of separating ourselves from the love of Christ. As we are believers who have exercised authentic faith, nothing can jeopardize our security. First Peter, you are being protected by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. He that has begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Number four, God's character and nature and power guarantee the security of the believer. Paul's writings to Timothy, what does he say? If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. There's a lot that is said about perseverance of the saints and endurance. And let me just say that those who have exercised authentic faith are truly those who are going to endure by the power of the Spirit. And even if those who have exercised authentic faith struggle and have challenges, if they truly have believed, right, God remains faithful even in the midst of our weaknesses, and he cannot deny himself. So if you are one who has exercised authentic belief, God is not going to deny himself by denying you. If indeed you, you do those things that are characteristic of unbelief and you've never exercised authentic belief, then you do not have access into this newness of life and the benefits from it. So don't be confused by our text. Those truly who have believed will persevere by the grace of God and they will be saved, not for anything that they have done, but because God cannot deny himself. Jude, a couple of verses here. Now to him who is able to protect you from stumbling, to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless and with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, power, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. He is able to protect you from stumbling and to make you, I love that, make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless and with great joy. Why blameless? Because of the righteousness of Christ and because we will be perfected and glorified in his presence in heaven. And he is the one who will make us stand in the presence of his glory. Again, it totally releases me from any responsibility to make that happen. I can't make that happen. He makes it happen. I have to exercise my responsibility of faith, but he is the one that brings me through and presents me at this time in eternity. The final thing I want to share, and we'll close, is that security, too, finds its roots in the fact that the Holy Spirit seals believers. Let me share these thoughts with you. We read these verses earlier. Ephesians 1. When you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed in him, you were also sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. He is the down payment of our inheritance, the redemption of the possession, 
to the praise of his glory. So, when you believed, when, when you decided to believe as you were drawn to the Father for salvation in his sovereignty, at that time of your belief, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the down payment of the inheritance. Accomplished. And again, there is nothing that can break that seal. You can't break that seal. Nothing else and no one else can break that seal. Why? Again, this goes back to our belief about God and understanding his self-revelation to us. If we have a proper doctrine of God and we understand him as the three-in-one God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, that all three are co-equal and co-eternal and co-existent, that they all three share the, the attributes of divinity, then we will interpret this passage properly relative to the Holy Spirit. And we will see him as part of the Godhead, sharing in those characteristics. The Holy Spirit then is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. And this seal which with he seals us cannot be broken because we have a proper understanding of the character and nature of God. And the Holy Spirit being God shares in that omnipotence and this seal is never in jeopardy. In fact, we are told, don't grieve the Holy Spirit in Ephesians 4. Why? You were sealed by him for the day of redemption. A seal that will last, a seal that will never be broken, never has to be replaced, can never be undone. So these thoughts I leave you this morning to encourage you in your security as you hope in Jesus because you have believed in him. And again, I don't know how exactly everyone's receiving this today. I don't know where you are in your journey. If you need to believe in Jesus still and trust in him as Savior and Lord, we'd love to talk with you today to help you with that. If you have already, but you've been discouraged and maybe you need encouraged, I hope this has accomplished that today. And for others, the reminder, help us to treasure it as we should and pass it on to others whom could be helped by it. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your mercy and your grace and thank you for Jesus who is a strong demonstration of that mercy and grace as he accomplished our salvation through his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Help us to leave here today encouraged in our security and help us, Father, if there's anyone here who doesn't know Jesus, who's never trusted Jesus to save them, may they understand what that means today, and may they do so in the strong and powerful name of Jesus. Amen.